You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Bhutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. Now, as we look at this, let's kind of keep the big picture in mind. Keep in mind, when, when, when the Christian church first started, when Christianity first began, we go back to the book of Acts, Acts chapters 1, 2, and 3. And remember, in, 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 those, in those passages, Acts chapters 1, 2, and 3, we see that Christianity started off with just a handful of followers, a handful of disciples. Then the Holy Spirit moved, and, and, and one thing led to another, and before you know it, there are some 3,000 followers. And then that was the beginning of the early church. Now, uh, we, we read in the book of Acts that the early church devoted themselves to four things. In fact, we read about that in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, And the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the sharing of meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And so what were the four things that the early church devoted themselves to? When we look in Acts 2, 42, we see that, number one, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That word teaching, didache, in the original Greek language, is a word that really implies public speaking publicly proclaiming and teaching the word of God, the the scriptures. And so what this tells us is that the early church was devoted to listening to the apostles' sermons, to to listening to them teach the word of God. I heard about a homiletics professor. Now, if you don't know, by the way, homiletics is is, is a class that you can take at a Bible college or sometimes at a seminary where they're basically going to teach you how to write a sermon and then how to preach a sermon. So now the professor of the, of the class, he asked his students, he said, now define, give me a definition of preaching. So one student said, well, preaching is, is simply proclaiming the gospel. Another student answered, said, well, well, preaching is more than that. It's actually teaching the scriptures, teaching the word of God. But perhaps the best definition went to the student who said, preaching is the fine art of talking in someone else's sleep. <laughs> I do it every single Sunday. You know who you are. Uh, but, but they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. By the way, did you realize that, that when some of you kind of nod off, you know how you can see me right now? I can see you. It's, it's kind of works the, you know, anyway. So I, but they devoted themselves to, 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 to the apostles' teaching. That was number one. But then number two, we, we, we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to fellowship. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but that word fellowship, it's the Greek word koinonia. It really means oneness. And so what it's telling us is that the early church was devoted to having oneness, to having unity, to having harmony, to to being a close-knit family with one another. So they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to fellowship. And then number three, they were devoted to sharing meals and the Lord's Supper. So you could say that the mark of a healthy church is a church that eats together. Hey, listen, that's why our nickname is Calorie Chapel. I mean, listen to this. This is in the Bible. The Bible says, Isaiah 55, verse 2, let your soul delight itself in fatness. That's in the Bible. And so they they, they devoted themselves to eating together. Now, oftentimes what they would do is they would share a meal, and then after they shared the meal, then they would have the Lord's Supper. They would have communion. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to sharing a meal in the Lord's Supper. And then finally, number four, they devoted themselves to prayer. (coughs) But the emphasis in Acts chapter 2 really seems to be on fellowship. The, the, the idea is, is that this was a church that was devoted to oneness. Now, over the years, here's what happened. Over the years, uh, they developed what was called an agape feast. Now, the word agape is just a, one, of, one of the Greek words for love. It speaks of perfect love. It speaks of pure love. It, it speaks of sacrificial love. 
Now, and so therefore, an agape feast was really a love feast. The whole premise of, of the feast, the whole base of the feast was, was love. You're gathering to, 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 to show your love for him and your love for one another. It was a love feast. Well, now, with the Corinthian church, there were a couple of things that went wrong with their agape feast, with their love feast. We, we go back, first of all, and we see that in, in, in verse 17, Paul says that, that in the first place, when you come together, I hear that there are divisions among you. So the first thing that went wrong was division, fighting. In fact, remember, all the way back in chapter one, in the very first chapter of this book, we saw that, 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 that they had sort of this cult of personality thing going on, right? Where, where one group would say, well, I'm of the Apostle Paul. Another group said, well, I'm of the Apostle Peter. Someone else said, well, I'm of Apollos. And, and so it's like they, they were divided in these little camps, these little factions where, where, where they were all, you know, uh, fighting over who their favorite preacher was, their, their, their favorite pastor. Now, in addition to fighting over their favorite preachers, they were also fa- fighting over their favorite doctrines. Things like baptism or this versus that. And, and, and then along with that, we're going to discover that they also were fighting over spiritual gifts and abusing spiritual gifts. And then we've seen in previous studies that this was a church filled with drunkenness and, and with divorce and with sexual sin, including incest. Causing one commentator to say, if churches were graded, the church at Corinth would be given a D for divided, defiled, and drunk. This was a problem church. And so the, the picture that Paul's painting here in chapter 11, it's almost as if that, 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 that when they had communion, it's almost as if they, they broke up into their little factions, broke up into their little cliques. So you had the, the, the group of Paul over here having communion their way. You had the group of Peter over here having communion their way. And then you had the group of Apollos having their own version of communion. They weren't one body. They weren't one church. They, they weren't unified. They were broken up in, into these little splinter groups, these little factions, and, and so that was problem number one. Now, problem number two is that they were also abusing the Lord's Supper. We see that in verse 20. He says, you know, uh, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you're eating. And then he says in verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. Now, remember, the original purpose of this so-called agape feast was what? Love. Your love for him and your love for one another. Now, there were three elements uh, to the agape feast, kind of a threefold thing. Element number one would have been communion, would have been the Lord's Supper. You're, you're gathering to demonstrate your love for him, to worship him, to remember the work of Christ on the cross to forgive your sins. That's number one. But then number two, the second element was fellowship, unity. You're breaking bread together. But then number three was, was feeding the poor. What they would do is they would invite the poor and the needy from the community to come and have this meal with them. And so it was a way to, to reach out to those who were in need. But now the problem, as, as we mentioned, was that the Corinthian church, they, they were gorging themselves, right? They, 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 were, they were stuffing their own faces, and on top of that, they were actually getting drunk on the communion wine. And then meanwhile, all the poor people, the, the homeless people that they invited from the community had to watch them eat the food they were supposed to be feeding the homeless with feeding the poor with. And so this was a, 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 a problem church. It was a fighting church. It was a selfish church. And so now as we pick it up in verses 23 through 26, we see that what they're fighting over is the Lord's Supper. And that's why Paul, here in these verses, has to remind them of what the Lord's Supper, what communion is actually about. And so in verse 23, he says, 
For I received from the Lord what I, re- what I delivered to you, that, uh, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now again, in your mind's eye, picture the scenario. Picture the scene. Again, it's almost as if we got all these splinter groups. You know, this group over here and that group over here. And, and not only are they, are they not taking communion with each other, but now it's almost as if they're fighting over whose way, whose method of doing communion was the better method. And so over here, they're like, you know what? Our, better, our method is better because we do it the way the Apostle Paul did it. But then this guy over here is like, no, you know what? We do it better because we do it the way the, the apostle Peter did it. And yet this other group, they're like, you know what? We do it a, a new modern way, the way Apollos did it. And see, this group was saying this, and this group is saying that. And that's why Paul now is reminding them of what communion is all about in the first place. He says, when you do it, it's in remembrance of Jesus. You don't do, hey, we're going to remember Paul when we did this. We're going to remember Peter when we did this. We're going to do it Paul's way, Apollos' way. No, you do it in remembrance of Jesus. And I did hear about a church, and this is a true story. A church that, that much like ours, they would do communion on the, on the first Sunday of the month. Uh, now, normally when we do communion, we do it during the worship time, but today we're going to do it at the end of this message because this is a message about communion. So this church, you know, they would do it on the first Sunday of the month, but, but every time they'd have communion, they always had a, a big fight over whether or not you should be using wine or grape juice as, when, you, when you serve communion. And so there was always a big fight. I mean, people actually left the church over this. And so this fight went on and on, month after month after month, and, and then finally, one communion Sunday, uh, they, everybody happens to notice that the cup looks a little different this week. But they drink it anyway, and they notice it tastes a little different this week. So after communion service is over, somebody asked one of the deacons who, who was in charge of, of filling the communion cups, they said, hey, what was different a, a, about communion this week? The guy kind of smiles and says, well, hey, listen, every month, every time we have communion, we, we always fight over whether it should be wine or grape juice, wine or grape juice. We do this month after month after month, and I just thought we all just need to, to, to loosen up a little bit. So I filled the cups with prune juice. <laughs> it's a true story. And so the Corinthian church, they're fighting over doing communion this way or doing communion that way. And listen, even in our modern day context, we still, as, as, as a body of Christians, I don't just mean us at Calvary Chapel, I mean all Christians, Baptists, you know, uh, Presbyterians, whatever, just the whole body of Christ, we still do not agree on which is the best method for communion. In fact, let me, let me give you the three major views when it comes to communion. If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. View number one is something called transubstantiation. We'll have it up on the screen for you so that you don't need to do a spell check. Transubstantiation, now, now you might call this the Catholic view. Now the Catholic view, transubstantiation, is basically a view that says the communion elements, that is the bread and the cup, become the quote-unquote real presence of Christ. Meaning that, that when the priest prays that, that a miracle takes place every time there's communion. The, the priest prays and, and, and miraculously that the, the bread is transformed literally into the actual body of Jesus. And then when the priest prays, another miracle takes place and the, and the cup is transformed into the blood of Jesus. It's often called the ongoing sacrifice of Christ. The ongoing sacrifice. Now let me explain that. You see, 
your original sin, the sin that we're born with as human beings, that, according to this doctrine, was, was, was forgiven on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for your original sin. But the sins you now commit, even though you're a Christian, but you know you, you still have an impure thought every now and then, or, or you know somebody cuts you off in traffic, you get a little road rage on, or you know maybe a little fight on the way to church this morning. You know who you are. Uh, but you know uh, whatever sins we commit during the week, those sins, according to this view, are forgiven every time you take communion. It's called the ongoing sacrifice of Christ. But here's the problem with that. The problem with that view is, is that basically what you're saying is that Jesus is, has to die again and again and again every time you take communion. But the problem with that is that the Bible says, in Romans chapter 6, verse 10, for example, he died to sin once and for all. He doesn't die again and again and again. There is no ongoing sacrifice. It was once and for all. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Now, the second view of communion, it sounds similar, but it's called consubstantiation. Now, transubstantiation, the first view, trans would be transform. And so, and so spiritually, uh, there's a miracle that takes place and, and the cup is transformed into the real presence of Christ. But with the second view, consubstantiation, con or con, uh, the, the prefix there in the Latin, con, like, like, much like in the Spanish, means with, like chili con carne. And so, and so what this view says is that when the priest prays, what happens is, is the, the elements aren't physically transformed, but instead what happens is the, the presence of Jesus is with the elements. And so when the priest prays, now the, the body of Jesus is with the bread. And when the priest prays, the, the blood of Jesus is with the cup. Now, many of the same problems that exist for the first view exist for the second view. But then that come, brings us to, to view number three of communion, and that's called the memorial view. The memorial view. Now, by the way, that's the view that, that we hold here at Calvary, and, 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 and a lot of other Christian churches hold this view. Uh, the memorial view is simply the view that, that says that... that, that that those elements, the, the bread and the cup, are just a memorial. They're just an object lesson that are meant to remind you of the sacrifice that he paid with his body. And so, and so the bread is nothing more than just bread. It's, it's, not, it's not the real presence of Jesus. It's not his spiritual presence with it. It's just bread. But the bread is meant to be an object lesson that reminds you that his body was pierced for your transgressions. The cup is, is just, it's just a cup, whether it's wine or, or juice, but it's meant to remind you of his blood that was shed to wash you white as snow. Now, where do we get this, this memorial view? Where it comes from the, the word remembrance that Paul uses here. Notice Paul says, he, he said uh, that, that he took the bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then verse 25, in the same way, he also said, when he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, that word remembrance, it's the Greek word omnemnesin. Literally, it's translated memorial. So why do we have the memorial view? Because that's the word that Jesus used. He said, he said do this as a memorial to me. Do this in remembrance of me. He's saying, you know what? That, that, you know, every time you, you, you eat this bread, it's going to be a reminder of my body. It's going to be a, a memorial, an object lesson that helps you remember me. Every time you drink this cup, it's going to be a reminder of my blood. It's a, it's a memorial. It's an object lesson that reminds you of my blood that was shed to wash you white as snow. 
And so it, 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 it's a memorial. And so he, he, he turns and he says in verse 25, in the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That's interesting. He said, this is the new covenant. And so we wonder, well, if there's a new covenant, there had to be an old covenant first, right? So what was the old covenant? Well, the old covenant really, in this context, is referring to the Passover night. Remember in Exodus chapter 12, uh, the, the night where, 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 where God's judgment was going to come upon uh, the, the land of Egypt. And, and God's judgment would come, and, and God told Moses that the only way that Moses' people, the Jewish people, would be spared of this judgment is if, is if they took a lamb, sacrificed that lamb, and then wiped the blood of that lamb on the doorpost of their homes. And then that night when the angel of death, God's judgment, came over the land, anyone that was under the blood of the lamb would be spared. God's judgment would pass over them. That was the first covenant that, that God made with his people. Now, by the way, uh, th that word covenant, uh, it comes from an old Hebrew word that literally means to cut. So whenever a covenant was made, something had to be cut. Blood had to be shared. That's what the word covenant means. It means to cut something. And so the idea in these ancient times is, is whenever two people would make a covenant with each other, uh, they, they would often take an animal, like, like a lamb, and, they would, and they, would, they, they would sacrifice it. They would cut it in half right down the spine, cut it in half, split it in two. Then the two people making the covenant, covenant would walk between those animal halves as if they were walking down an aisle, and they'd get sprayed by the animal's blood. And it was a symbolic way of saying, you know, if, if I ever break my end of the deal, if I ever violate this agreement, if I ever go back and violate the covenant that I made with this other person, then may what was done to this animal be done to me. And so covenants were for life, and they were made in blood. And so uh, God made a co covenant with the people of Moses under the blood of this lamb. Because of the blood of that lamb, God's judgment passed over them. But now, Jesus says, I'm making a new covenant. A new covenant in my blood. That just as, as, as God's judgment passed over them because of the blood of the lamb, Jesus is saying, you know what? Because of my blood shed on the cross, God's judgment will pass over you. This is a new covenant. And this is why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, in John chapter 1, verse 29, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, it says, For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. And so in effect, when Jesus says, Do this in remembrance of me, what he's saying, you know, is, is it from now on, whenever you eat this bread, this Passover meal, this bread is no longer going to remind you of the old covenant with Moses. It's no longer going to remind you how, how, how you know, God's judgment passed over them because of the lamb. Now this bread is going to remind you of my new covenant. And when you have this cup, this, this cup is going to remind you of my blood that was shed. And because my blood was shed, God's judgment will pass over you. Because of my blood, your sins will be washed white as snow. You're under a new covenant. And so Paul is, is reminding the Corinthians of this. Why? Why is he reminding them of the real meaning of the Lord's Supper? The, the true purpose of communion? Why? Because as we pick it up in verse 27 through 32, we see that they were taking communion in an unworthy manner. In an unworthy manner, verse 27. Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. 
Uh, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone who who eats or drinks without without discerning the body, they eat and drink judgment on themselves. That's why uh, many are, are, are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we have judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And so we notice in, in verse 27, he says, whoever eats or drinks of the, of, of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty of the body of the Lord. So then he goes on to say, examine yourself. Now notice, it does not say whoever feels unworthy to eat of the bread or drink of the cup. It says whoever does it in an unworthy manner. You see, it was the manner that they were doing it. It was, it was the way that they were having communion. It was, it, was, it was what they were doing that Paul had the problem with, that Paul took issue with. He wasn't saying, hey, listen, if, if any of you feel unworthy this morning to, to have the Lord's Supper, you know, because there's some kind of sin in your life, you know, gotten a little argument on the way to church or been looking at the wrong stuff online or, you know, you, you blew up at the person at the checkout stand, where, you know, anybody feels unworthy, then, then you know, don't, don't have the Lord's Supper because, you know, if you, if you feel that way and you take communion anyway, well, then you might be bringing judgment on yourself. That is not what Paul was saying. You know, listen, if that were the case, if you could only take communion when you felt worthy, frankly, none of us would ever be able to take communion. Because listen to this, it's not about how he, whether or not you feel worthy, it's about the fact that he is worthy. It's not about you, it's about worshiping him. That's what we do it in remembrance of him. It has nothing to do with how you feel. It has nothing about, about your worthiness. It's about he is worthy to be praised to be worshiped, and that's why we do it. We do it in remembrance of him. And so every now and then, you know, I'll have people come up after a communion service and say, well, you know, pastor, I, I didn't take communion today because you know, I just didn't feel worthy. You know, I had this going on, and, I, and I, 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 I got angry, and I blew this, and I did that, and I had this other thing. And, 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 and again, that's not the issue. The issue isn't about worth. The, the issue was the manner the way they were doing it. And so, how were they doing it? How were they taking it? What, 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 was, what was wrong with their manner of doing it? Well, what were they doing wrong? Well, frankly, what were they doing right? I mean, what weren't they doing wrong? I mean, you know, this, again, as, as we mentioned, this is a church, when they gathered together for the agape feast, they were gorging themselves, stuffing their faces, and then getting drunk on the communion wine, and then on top of that, taking advantage of the poor, eating the food they're supposed to be feeding to the poor. Now, with that, let's keep something else in mind. Keep in mind who these people were. Who were the Corinthians before they became Christians? They were pagans. They, they were pagans. It's first service. They were on it. They, they all said, literally, it's, on, it's probably on, on, on recorded. They literally said, pagans. Uh, you, I don't know what's wrong with you guys. But anyway, <laughs> they, they were pagans before they came to Christ. So what does that mean? Well, we've talked about this before. Keep in mind that, that the pagan temples, that many of these pagan temples after their worship services were converted into barbecue restaurants with an open bar. Literally. And so the worshipers would stick around basically slamming shots and pigging out. And so what Paul's saying is, listen, he's saying when, when you treat the agape feast like a pagan feast, you're taking communion in an unworthy manner. When, when, when you treat the Lord's Supper like it's a pagan feast, you're doing it wrong. You, when, when, when you turn holy hour into happy hour, that's a problem. And so that's what he's saying. 
They were doing it in an unworthy manner. It was the way they were doing it that was the problem. And so now he makes an appeal. In these last two verses, his appeal is, let's come together. Verse 33, he says, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So we notice this phrase when, when, when Paul says, when you come together. In fact, it's a phrase that, that in this passage we've read this morning, he uses five different times. In the original Greek language, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the term sunekomai. Literally, it can be translated assemble together. It can, be, it can be translated gather together. But what's interesting about this word is that at its root word level, at the root level, it really speaks of coming together to eat. You could say coming together is what brings us together. Now on that note, remember, a couple weeks ago, back in chapter 10, we, 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 we mentioned that, that in those ancient days, they literally believed that when you broke bread with each other, you were becoming one with each other. And I illustrated back then that what they believed is, you know, if I took a loaf of bread and I tore off a piece for myself, and then I gave you the loaf, they believed that a part of me remained on that loaf. So now when you took the loaf and, and you broke off a piece for yourself, you not only got a piece of bread, but you got a part of me as well. And so they literally believed that by breaking bread together, you were becoming one with each other. That's why 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17 said, because there's one bread, we who are many are one body. Because they believed that by breaking bread together, you were becoming one with each other. But the picture that the Apostle Paul is painting of the Corinthian church so that every time they gathered together to, to break bread, every time they gathered together for the Lord's Supper, that they ended up fighting with each other. In fact, we see that back in verse 18. In verse 18, he says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, and remember, that root word come together, come together to eat as a church. When you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And so it's, it's, like, it's like every time they got together, <clears throat> it wasn't a church meeting, it was a fight club. That They were just fighting with each other. In fact, I read about a church that, that broke out into a fist fight during communion. It's a true story. It's a church called New Salem Missionary Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. And during the communion service, a huge brawl broke out. The police had to be called. They break it up, and, and, and the police investigate, and they find that what started the whole thing was, was, was when the pastor's wife, her name is Terry Bell, punched another woman by the name of Beverly Millam. And why did the pastor's wife punch Beverly Millam? Because she found that Beverly was having an affair with her husband, the pastor of the church. So this huge fight breaks out, this brawl breaks out during communion service. Now, it may not have been that chaotic at the Corinthian church, but what Paul's basically telling the, the, this, this church that was fighting with each other is he's saying, you know what? You need to stop fighting each other and come together. Become one with one another. I ran across this. Uh, Thomas Rayner, who, who is a statistician, and, and he has a, a, a group called Church Answers. They, they conduct nationwide polls. And recently, he conducted a poll on Twitter asking people to, to, to submit uh, silly things that they know that church members fight about. And these are all true things that have actually happened. I mean, hundreds of them were submitted. Now, here's just a handful. Uh, uh, one person submitted and said that, that their church got into a huge fight when, 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 when they were having communion because somebody served uh, ocean spray cranberry grape juice instead of Welch's grape juice. And a huge fight broke out. <clears throat> Another church actually split. I mean, split into two different churches uh, be, because they had a fight uh, because somebody changed, the, the, changed from Folgers coffee to Starbucks coffee. Can I just say that friends do not let friends drink Folgers? 
Uh, my friends. Uh, and then another church had, to, had a huge argument over, over what brand of green beans should be served at the Thanksgiving outreach to the poor and the homeless. And then there was another church that had a huge argument that erupted uh, because somebody brought deviled eggs to the church potluck. They're like, don't be bringing the devil's eggs into this church. And then there's another church literally that got into a fist fight over gluten-free communion. So I think all of this could be put under the banner of quote-unquote unworthy manner. Now we'll go back and look at verse 27 in this whole unworthy manner when Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. Now, you know, typically, uh, how, how that's often understood is, is typically a person will say, well, you know what that means is, is, is before you take communion, you need to examine yourself. You know, you need, you need to take some time to do some soul searching. You know, take some time and, and you know, confess your sins to God and, and, you know, and just, you know, evaluate yourself. And, you know, maybe there's some things you've done this week that you're not proud of. Or, or maybe there's some secret sin in your life that, that you think nobody knows about. Well, spend some time, you know, examining yourself and confessing that sin because they say if you don't and, and you take communion anyway, well, then you're taking communion in an unworthy manner and you might bring judgment on yourself. Now, those that, that think that way, they, they might even quote verse 29 again, but this time maybe from the New American Standard Bible, where it says, For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. And they might say, well, the word body there actually refers to your own body. That if you don't judge your own body, examine your own body, and, and deal with the sins that you've committed with your body, and you take communion anyway, then you might bring judgment on your body. But then again, Another group might say, well, no, that word body is not talking about your body. It's talking about the body of Jesus, Jesus's body. And again, they might quote verse 29, but maybe they quote it from the New King James Version where it says, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. I say, see, it's not, it's not your body. It's Jesus's body. It's the Lord's body. And so they would say the idea is, is that before you take communion, you should first take a minute and remember him. Re re remember the, the price that he paid for your sins with his own body. That his body was pierced for your transgressions. His blood was shed to wash you of your sins. Then again, there, there might be a third group. And maybe they'd say, you know what? That word body is actually talking about the, 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 the church collectively. It's talking about Christians in general. It's talking about the body of Christ. And again, they might read verse 29 from the Christian standard Bible that says, whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment to himself. Or maybe the New Living Translation that simply says the body of Christ. And so they'd say, hey, listen, communion is to remind us that we're, that we're one with each other. That you know, when we break bread with each other, we've become one with each other. And so therefore, if you've got a problem with, 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 with another brother in, in the church, a, a sister in Christ, well, then you know what? You've got to resolve that issue before you take communion. You know, you've got you've to clean that up. You've got to deal with it. You know, because if you don't deal with your issue with them and you take communion anyway, you're taking communion in an unworthy manner. And maybe they even quote Mark chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, where, where Jesus said, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, then neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. Simply put, that if your heart's not right with them, your heart's not right with him. 
And so if you want to be right with him, you also need to get right with them. And so then we wonder, well, which view is it? Which one is it? Answer, all of the above. Because you see, ultimately, communion is to remind us, first of all, foremost, of of the price that he paid. It's an object lesson. It's a reminder that his body was pierced for our transgressions. It's a reminder that his blood was shed to forgive us of our sins. And so ultimately, we do it in remembrance of him. But then also, it, it, it helps us to remember that, that, that we not only, you know, we're, we're forgiven by him, but, but we still, you know, we, we, need to, we need to confess our sins. We, we, we still blow it sometimes. We, we, need, we need to kind of deal with some stuff. We need to have a, a business meeting with him, if you would. We, we need to get right with him. We, we, need, to, we need to examine ourselves and, and, and come clean with him. But then it's also a reminder that, you know what, just like we need to get right with God, some of us need to get right with each other. Some of us, even in the same church, have problems with one another. And so we need to clean that up. It's interesting. I read about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, Bonhoeffer had an interesting view of communion. He said this. He said, baptism incorporates us into the unity of the body of Christ and the Lord's Supper fosters and sustains our fellowship and communion in that body. And so in Bonhoeffer's view, communion was this, was this perpetual way that reminded us of the oneness that we had as the body of Christ, the unity that we have with each other. Now, as we know, Bonhoeffer, uh, you know, he, he, he was a pastor, he was a believer in Christ, but he was adamantly opposed to Hitler and Hitler's agenda. And he spoke out against it, and as a result, he was arrested, he, and he was locked up, and he was placed in solitary confinement. And he was beaten uh, day in and day out, and when they did feed him, they fed him moldy bread. And then he said of all those things, he says, you know, the beatings, the solitary confinement, the sickness, everything he faced, he said, none of those things ever got to him. The only thing that really depressed him was was being completely cut off from the nurturing, the the, the support and the fellowship of other Christians. He said that that on more than one occasion, the thing that 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 he missed the most was being able to break bread and take communion with the rest of the body of Christ. That it just wasn't the same when he was in isolation. It just wasn't the same without the rest of the body. And so this morning we're going to take communion. Now if you've already taken communion a moment ago, well, you know, uh, you're a sinner. No, I'm kidding. Uh, But for those of you that haven't taken it yet, we're going to take it now. But as you do it, uh, listen, do it, number one, in remembrance of him. The price that he paid for your sins. He died that you might live. But then number two, take some time to examine yourself. Search, ask the Lord to search your heart, to, to bring to your mind anything that, that, that you need to come clean about, anything that you need to deal with. And then perhaps while you're praying, maybe he puts on your heart a, a brother or a sister in Christ, someone you have a problem with, someone you have an issue with. And you know what? While you're at it, pray for them. Because sometimes the thing that's standing in our way of being right with him is that we're not right with them. So do these things in remembrance of him. Don't just rush through it. Don't just do it because that's what we do. Don't just do it because you're in the habit of doing it. Don't just do it because it's, you know, what Christians do. Do it in remembrance of him. Don't do it in an unworthy manner. Do it because he's worthy of your worship. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.